But we're going to read, I'm going to read you uh, two passages from Deuteronomy. The first from Deuteronomy 10 and the second from Deuteronomy 24. At City Light, we believe that uh, the Bible is God's word, and as it's read and taught faithfully and accurately, it's God speaking to us. And so we're going to be diving into Deuteronomy 10 and 24, and it'll come up on the screen for you. Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. In Deuteronomy 24, 14 to 22. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a, a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, it's great to be with you again. My name is Jacob. If we haven't met before and if you're visiting, just want to send my welcome to Jazz. It's great having you with us. Um, for whatever reason you're here, whether you're coming along with some friends or some family or whether you're looking for a church community to make your own or whether you're exploring the questions of faith, it really is just great to have you guys here with us as we, um, as we continue our way through the book of Deuteronomy, which has been, um, I've re- it's been a ride I've really enjoyed over the last little while, uh, looking at some parts of the Bible that maybe in a normal year just wouldn't even come into your mind and trying to look at them and, and think about what God is trying to teach us through it. So we're going to... That was bound to happen one day. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to start our time by praying um, that, that God would be uh, just with us as we look at his words. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you that you are with us, that you are, um, that you are present here in this room by your spirit, and that as we look at your words... Uh, from this text which is thousands of years old that you are speaking to us and we just ask that we would just be aware of that and that we would be listening to the words you've got to say and for what you want to do in us and the ways you want to change us and we pray this in Jesus name Amen Now when I was 18 and not yet a Christian I had the opportunity to go and visit Ethiopia for a few weeks and I went and I, I stayed with my family who were working over there aunties and uncles and they were uh, working to develop agriculture practices in a part of Ethiopia that had a lot of malnourishment and a lot of famine. And it was an amazing trip and when I was there I got to meet a whole bunch of people who were doing some pretty incredible things in a really needy part of the world. And one person I met was a, a woman by the name of Catherine. 
And when I met Catherine, she was in her late 80s, and, um, and I was told we were going to go have a cup of tea. And I've got to admit, I wasn't that excited about having a cup of tea with an 80-year-old when I was 18, but went, went along for the ride. And we visited her cottage on the outskirts of Addis Ababa. And she told us her story, and I got to learn a bit about what she had done. And Catherine and her husband, Reg, uh, were from Sydney, and they had been obstetricians. And in 1959, they answered an advertisement to go and establish a midwifery school in Ethiopia. Well, that was a big deal, like even now, I guess, to move from Sydney to, to Africa, but even more so back in the 50s. And when they got there, they were overwhelmed by just the sheer amount of need. The amount of women who were presenting uh, with traumatic uh, complications from difficult childbirth, complications that these guys hadn't even seen in Australia because of the baseline medical care we have here. And so they decided to stay and they, they began a hospital uh, dedicated to the treatment and providing free treatment for these women who had no other access to care. She ended up spending the rest of her life doing this, remaining in Ethiopia to her death uh, very recently in 2020. And over that time, the hospital that she established provided free treatment for 60,000 women who otherwise wouldn't have had any opportunity to get care. Now, I was struck by the impact that, that really one person could have over a lifetime, breathing kind of just life and care to a, to a group of people that otherwise may have gone forgotten. And the thing that stood out to me in that moment was her faith. She explained that the reason that she did this, the reason that she went to Ethiopia, because her, her, her faith led her to go and care for the vulnerable. And that was a significant thing for me to, to think about. Because at the time, I, I thought that Christianity was quite, a, really a bit of a stale thing. I didn't feel that Christianity was bad, but I was aware that there was this kind of notion out there that, that Christianity as a whole isn't particularly good for justice. It's not particularly a good thing for the vulnerable. And you think of things like, you know, crusades, or you think of uh, accounts of, of church leaders using their power to prey on the vulnerable. But Catherine's life, and, and people like her, their life tells a very different story. That there is something about the Christian faith that leads to a pouring out of justice for the vulnerable. Now we've been looking at the book of Deuteronomy, which is a, a pretty foreign part of the Bible. What it is in its essence is a presentation of a legal code to a group of people, the Israelites, who are on the cusp of going in and beginning anew, starting a whole new nation from scratch. And it's the laws that are telling them how they're to live in this new land. Now, I don't know if you'd had the opportunity to kind of just wipe all the laws clean, start from the ground up what things you'd include. I cycle to work each day, and I was thinking this week, wouldn't it be great if just for 30 minutes every morning and afternoon there was a rule that no cars were on the road, just cyclists? If you're a cyclist, you might agree with that. There's only two types of people, cyclists and people that hate cyclists. That's probably most of you wouldn't love that. But if you, if you had the kind of power to make any law you want, it would reveal a lot about the things that are important to you. And as we've been looking through the book of Deuteronomy at a, at a bunch of laws, which, if we're honest, do often seem bizarre um, or, or quite foreign or, or even don't even necessarily make sense to us on first reading, what we see through these laws is what are the kind of things that are important to God. And so over the last few weeks, we've seen a few of these. A couple of weeks ago, if you were here, we looked at a lot of the laws around uh, the sacrificial system and how it is that that shows that it's important to God for people to have an awareness of their own sin and need, but also awareness that God is the one who provides the sacrifice needed for people to have a relationship with him. Last week, we looked at a bunch of the laws around holiness and uh, in particular, the, uh, the, uh, a whole swathe of laws that really 
set up how these people are to live as different and distinct from the nations around them. That that was to show the that, that they were God's treasured possession and a chosen people. Um, and this week we're covering really a third category of laws that are concerned broadly with what we would classify as social justice. Laws that are set out for the direct protection of vulnerable groups within society to create equal opportunity for those who are poorer or just don't have naturally as much uh, protection or opportunity or provision. And what we're going to see as we look at some of these is that God has a particular love for and a particular care for vulnerable people. And so what I want to do today as we look at a few of these is to give you a bit of a taste of this from Deuteronomy. There's way more than we've got time to get across uh, in this short bit of time today. Then to show how that fits with the rest of the Bible as a whole and then to start us thinking about what that could mean for us and our church today. So the first thing we need to see as we look in the book of Deuteronomy is that God is a God who identifies with the vulnerable. Look at me at the first just couple of verses that Jez read out in Deuteronomy chapter 10 from 17 to 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. When you get asked to introduce yourself or, or describe yourself, I don't know what the first things that come to mind are. Like for me, I probably... Just by default, go to what I do during the week. I say, oh, you know, I work at a church. Maybe after that, then I think of family. I, you know, my husband, my wife, Sarah, my son, River. The things that first come to mind when you kind of need an opportunity to describe yourself show really what are the things that you think about and care about most. And so what we see here in Deuteronomy, and this is just because we're looking at Deuteronomy time and time again in the Bible, when you see these little description statements of God, you again and again and again see that he describes himself in reference to the vulnerable. And particular people groups that come up, again, it's, it's often the fatherless, orphans, or widows, the sojourner, which or the foreigner, often the poor as well. And to understand the significance of these categories, we need to understand the cultural context of the time. In the ancient Middle East, so throughout Israel and Canaan, modern-day Turkey, uh, Syria, uh, Egypt, all of that, that entire part of the world, thousands of years ago when this, when this was written, were, were patriarchal societies. That is, that, that wealth and power was predominantly consolidated within men, but not even just men, but particularly with the heads of households. It was firstborn males in these cultures that would inherit wealth, predominantly livestock and land. And other people, so women, children, employees, um, their economic security was found in the degree of attachment to a family unit. And so in this kind of patriarchal ancient Middle East, there were particular groups, orphans, people who didn't actually have fathers to provide for them, or women who had left the safety net of one family unit of, under their father and gone and married a man who had then passed away, leaving them exposed, or, or foreign men and women who didn't have any share of, of the land and, and the good things the land produces, as well as just the poor overall, people who are subsistence living, um, dependent on others for their provision, these groups were vulnerable. They were more prone to suffer from the effects of poverty or drought or hunger or abuse or exploitation or homelessness. It's a very different world from the world we live in today. There's no Centrelink. There's no assumed equal opportunity between men and women. It's a different world to ours. And into this culture, thousands of years ago, a radical statement is made about God. 
that the Lord your God executes justice for the fatherless, the widow, who loves the sojourner or the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Now, if that doesn't feel like a particularly radical statement to you, you don't need to feel bad about that, but it does demonstrate how influenced you are by the Judeo-Christian worldview. Because for most of history and for most of cultures, God or, or the gods haven't been associated with the, the lower socioeconomic groups or those who are vulnerable, but rather they identify with power. In Egypt, the, the country where the Israelites had spent hundreds of years, the pharaoh was this ultimate patriarch. He was the father of all of Egypt. And that position as, as father of Egypt and the one who holds all the land, all the resources, was seen to actually make him himself divine. That the idea that if you had wealth and opportunity and power, you were godlike. And if you were to think, well, who are the people that, 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 that God's obviously favor, we'd think, well, it's, it's the patriarchs, it's the landowners, it's the wealthy. It's not inherently obvious that, that the gods or a god would care for the bottom rungs of society. I think most of us, we feel that that should be the case, that, that if there is a god out there, they sh- that, that he or they or it should care about the poor. But for most of history, that hasn't been obvious. But what we see in these verses in Deuteronomy, and not just here, but throughout the entire Bible again and again and again, God lists these categories of the, of the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner as the very people that God puts alongside his own name. God is a God who identifies with the vulnerable. But more than just kind of saying it, what we see as we dig into some of the laws in the book of Deuteronomy is that God is really concerned to create a society that is counterculturally caring for these these more vulnerable groups. Now, it's really important to note, and I you know, can't really stress this enough, that the way to, to read these Old Testament laws and to understand them isn't, through go, isn't by going to them and just trying to make a direct comparison and weighing them up against ours. If you ever visit a foreign country that's very, you know, with a different culture to your own, usually you pretty quick come across things that maybe they take for granted there that you don't take for granted, or that you do and that they don't or the way that you just view things differently. And if you just step into another culture with the assumed mindset that my culture is superior, their culture is inferior, my views are right, their views are wrong, that's obviously a very kind of snobbish or even colonial way to, to enter into a culture. That's not how you, you, we know that you meant to this, a humility to, to stop and to listen to understand, that maybe there'd be critiques you would make, but you don't just charge in with an assumption that you know best. And so I think when we approach the Old Testament, we need to actually spend some time reflecting and and listening and considering this particular culture. Because often we can read it with very Western eyes. An example of this is when it comes to talking about slavery. If you've read through the Bible, you may have come across times where it talks about slavery, and you may have found that very, very confronting. Slavery was a given in the ancient world, and, and there's laws in the Bible that mention slavery. And so on first glance, you might think, well, does that mean that God condones slavery? Is God for slavery? He's just said that he's concerned with these vulnerable people groups, but then here, here, throughout Deuteronomy at different points, we see slavery mentioned as a reality, which can feel problematic. But I think when you dig into it and you see what, what are the things that the Bible says about slavery, you actually see that there's actually, um, it's, it's, it's really, really countercultural. I want to show you a law uh, that will come up on the screen behind me. And it says this, 
If anyone find runaway, ma runaway male or female slaves in the open country and bring them to their masters, the master of the slaves shall pay him two shekels of silver. If the slave will not give the name of the master, the finder shall bring him to judgment. A further investigation must follow, and the slave shall be returned to his master. So this is a law that's pretty straightforward. It prevents slaves from escaping. It financially incentivizes the community to, if they find an escaped slave, to, uh, to ensure that slave doesn't go free. And if a slave is not willing to say where they've come from, it, it permits some form of punishment to extract that name. Now, I haven't put the Bible passage up on that one because this isn't from the Bible. It, it does feel um, like it's, it's the same kind of time. That's because it is. It's from the law code of Hammurabi, the king of Babylon. And this was written and dated on this stone obelisk in which it was found to 2000 BC. So it's a contemporary of what we're reading in Deuteronomy. But I want to show you a law from Deuteronomy that deals with really the same situation but in a very different way. This is Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16. It says, if a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand him over to his master. Let him live among you wherever he likes and in whatever town he chooses. Do not oppress him. Now you can see this is very different. Same part of the world, same time, a completely different way of doing things. That the way the Israelites were to live is that if a, if, a, if a slave has escaped and has come and sought refuge, that you should give them that refuge. Let them enjoy their freedom. It's an extremely progressive way to, to, to live in the ancient world. While we're on slavery, often when we do see slavery mentioned though in the Bible, we, we, um, the, I guess the images that probably come to mind for us are the, the African slave trade and the atrocities that were committed over hundreds of years, um, the racism involved in that, um, just the, the, the horrific things that happened um, throughout the world in that era of the, of the African slave trade. But slavery in Israel, even though it is something that existed, is very different to that. Let me, let me show you Deuteronomy 15 from verse 12 to 15. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. So there's the, there's the existence of some form of kind of slave system happening in Israel where people would enter into slavery, either that the, where it says is sold to you, it could be translated sells himself to you because it might have been an option for people who are financially destitute, unable to provide for themselves or their family as a, as a means of last resort to offer yourself as a slave because that would come with, with, with at least food and accommodation. Or maybe someone would find themselves in a debt made through some error or through some bad decision where they've got a debt they can't repay and the only way to pay it back is to enter into a as to become a slave. But you see a few things about how, how that was to work. And, and the big one is that in Israel, slavery had a, a limited time frame. That every seven years, slaves would be set free. It wasn't a lifelong thing, it wasn't a permanent thing. And when that was to happen, they were not just to be sent away empty-handed, but they were to be sent away with food and with drink. That they were to be treated with the same blessing that God has given to them. That they were to keep in mind that they had been slaves and yet they were set free, and so they should not themselves be turned into harsh slave masters. 
It's countercultural. They should be generous and kind. Let me show you another law. This time it's one to protect the poor. Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 and 2. At the end of every seven years you shall grant a release, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. We live in a world today where, where predatory lending is everywhere, where, where banks and financial institutions are happy to lend people money that they know they can't repay, trapping them in debt, where people end up spending more in interest than they've even borrowed to begin with. But Israel had a law to prevent this. Their law was every seven years, all debts would be forgiven. This would protect the vulnerable from being lent money that they couldn't pay back because you'd only be lending someone money that you knew that you'd be happy to lose at the end of a seven-year period. It would stop profiteering on unrealistic debts and trapping people in these debt traps. Show another law of chapter 24, verse 14 about how employment should operate. Do not take advantage of, hired, of a hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns, pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and counting on it. Otherwise, they might cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. That in, that in employment agreements, whether they were employing an Israelite or a foreigner, it was built into their law to care for them, to provide them, to not withhold what people are owed. There were other laws to ensure that everyone had enough food to eat. Um, this is one of the ones that was read before, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. Imagine if we had laws like this built in where, where producers of, of food or, or the distributors or, or Woolworths or whatever it is had this law where 5% of everything they had, they had to kind of just leave out to be taken by anyone in need. It's an extremely progressive law, caring for those vulnerable groups that God has said, he identifies with. As you read through the book of Deuteronomy as well, you see laws that are there to protect women, and in particular, vulnerable women. I read your law from Deuteronomy chapter 22, and it's in, in some ways it's a, it's a law that deals with harsh stuff, but it's obviously a necessary law, and this is what it says. If out in the country a man happens to meet a young woman pledged to be married and rapes her, only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the woman. She's committed no sin deserving death. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders a neighbor. For the man found the young woman out in the country, and though the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to rescue her. This week, if you're on the City Light mailing list, Jez sent an email with, a, um, with an interview with, with Dr. Sandy Richter, who's an Old Testament historian and theologian and scholar. And she argues that the laws that you find in the Old Testament, and in Deuteronomy in particular, are radically humanizing for women, in particular vulnerable women. And there, there's, always, there's some laws in, in Deuteronomy that take a bit more work to get into, so I can't recommend that podcast enough. But, but just here in this one we've just taken out, here is a law that gives credit to the victim. It's enshrined in their law to validate the testimony of the victim. Oftentimes, cultures have made 
victims of, of sexual abuse actually feel shame or questioning whether they have a right to speak up or questioning whether maybe they're in some way to blame or deserved it. But here is this law that black and white says it's not the woman's fault. And in fact, in an instance like this, when there is no witness, just the, just the, the victim and the attacker, the victim's testimony is to be believed. It's empowering. It empowers women to speak out. And the consequences are harsh because it shows that this is not some insignificant thing, but it is a violent crime deserving of death. As you work the way through the book of Deuteronomy, you just find law after law, and there's so many I just haven't been able to get into about a treatment of animals and, and, and caring for the animals who, who worked on the farms to, to talking about um, finances and having 10% of everything set aside to feed those who are in need. But taking it in totality, what you get as you read through the laws in Deuteronomy is a God who doesn't just identify with the vulnerable in word, but creates and seeks to create a society that shares his love for the vulnerable. He insists upon it. In Deuteronomy 27.19, he says, Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Now, it's a bit of a fire hose, the way, the way we've just gone about that, but I just wanted to impress upon you just the, just the sheer just volume of, of laws that are there to protect these groups. And that's just in the book of Deuteronomy. As you continue your way through the Bible again and again and again, these themes come up. This is something that is important to God. And to anyone who's familiar with the person of Jesus and his teachings and his life, this shouldn't come as much of a surprise. Jesus, who announced his ministry by proclaiming he was good news to the poor and sight to the blind. Jesus, who famously answered a rich young man's question of what must I do to have eternal life by saying you should sell everything and give it to the poor. Who invited into his fold lepers and prostitutes. Who, in one of his most famous stories, made the hero a foreigner, a Samaritan. Jesus, who again and again identified with the vulnerable himself. Look what he says in Matthew 25, verse 35. This is Jesus speaking, saying to his disciples, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you in sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And he goes on to say the opposite is true, that the times in which they've withheld food or water or drink or clothing, that they withheld it from Jesus. If someone asked you, how can I encounter Jesus? What would be your default answer to that question? If one of you guys came up to me on a normal day and said, how can I encounter Jesus? My default answer would be, well, are you reading your Bible? That's how God speaks to us. You've got to open your Bible and hear from him every day. Um, are you getting along to church, gathering with a community of believers and having that reminder? Um, are you cutting out time to just be quiet and to meditate and to pray and to talk to him? But here Jesus says a bit of a different answer. Those things are obviously all good. But he's saying that he's encountered 
in the face of the poor, the naked, the prisoner? Could it be that the road to intimacy with Jesus is found in proximity, being in proximity to those who are in need, in reaching out in generosity and justice? The reason that I've, I've put this verse in here is because Catherine Hamlin, who I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, who was driven to, to Africa, was, was motivated primarily by these verses. These are the verses that she hung in her hospital and this is the reason she spent her life doing what she did because she believed that Jesus meant what he said, that whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And she wrote a, an autobiography and when she was questioned at one point by people saying, doesn't encountering this suffering day after day make you, f make you doubt your faith in God? What she said was, the joy I receive from working with these patients is something for which I thank God every day. It has strengthened my faith to know that we are doing something that is in his will and the wonderful thing is that it is so enjoyable. It shouldn't be surprising that what Jesus says is true. The time actually spent pouring ourselves out for those in need brings us closer to God. That shouldn't be a surprise because the climax of Jesus' ministry was him making himself vulnerable for the vulnerable. That Jesus was arrested, stripped, beaten, deprived of justice, strung up on a cross, alone, immobile, hungry, and thirsty, and he died. And that was Jesus' moment of greatness. That was the means by which he saved the world. That was the means by which he reached out a hand to each and every one of us who are in desperate need, even if we don't feel that we're that needy because we've got money and we live in Australia, he reached his hand out to those of us in need and he saved us. For those of us in need of mercy, this is God's heart. He looks at people who are desperate and needy and he feels compassion and love to the point of his own suffering to go and reach out and show that love. Do you realize that central to God's heart is a love for the poor? This doesn't get an, probably as much airtime as it should in the church. People often even walk away from the faith without realizing what they're walking away from. People walk away from a faith thinking they're walking away from a God who is mean or distant or non-compassionate, but instead they're walking away from a God who from beginning to end has cared for the most needy people in our world. And this is what the church is called to. If you read the book of Acts, you see that from the very beginning the church was concerned for carrying out justice and care for the vulnerable. The very first ministry positions, other than the 12 apostles that Jesus appointed, was setting up of some people called deacons whose responsibility was to oversee the distributing of food to widows. It's marked the early church for centuries. In 300 AD, the historian Eusebius was writing about a plague that was going across the Roman Empire. And this is what he said. He said, all day long, some of them, the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those who withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. A couple of decades after this, the last non-Christian emperor of Rome wrote that in frustration that the Christians were making the Romans look bad by not only caring for their own poor, but for the Roman poor as well. Justice, the care for the marginal and the vulnerable, is not an optional extra for the people of God. 
It has been central to the people of God back from the Old Testament through to the time of Jesus, through to the church, through to now. It's not for a certain personality type, people who kind of, you know, are a bit kind of hippie and outside. It's not for those who have got too much time on their hands. It's something you do when you're a uni student and then again when you're retired. But concern for the justice and the marginalized should be a concern shared by every single Christian. Jez shared last week a bit about our vision, Jesus' vision really, that that his people would be salt and light, that we would be salt that is distinct from those around us, and that we would be light, shining something good into a world that is in darkness. And integral to Israel being a nation among nations, integral to Israel being salt and light, was them having a concern for justice. And that's got to be our concern as well. And we've seen evidence over the year that this is the heart of this church. Since 2016, we've given away over $150,000 to a, a number of organizations that, that Jez mentioned before. Vulnerable people, refugees, single mothers, persecuted Christians, the homeless. And that's just the money that we've kind of pulled together through our church bank account. That's not including the way 